All right, you guys, it is March 13th, Friday the 13th, and I am coming to you live from Sacramento. I'm still here. I crashed so hard yesterday. This week has been huge. Yesterday was huge. Um, what I'm going to do today is I'm just going to go through my notes. So this one's probably the most ad hoc podcast I've done um, since I've been back. But I wanted to just take you through the notes because it was a really big day. And it um, it's funny because you lay over it, all this coronavirus stuff. And it's definitely different in Sacramento than in Santa Cruz up here. They've decided they weren't going to focus on containment, just mitigation, which is essentially to say, <laughs> between you and I, fuck it. We can't see it. We don't know where it is. We can't get tests. So y'all just do what you think is the right thing to do. I'm not saying that the um, local officials are being irresponsible. I'm just saying it's just a different vibe up here. And so um, I've been pretty nervous about it, especially because I've been out with people in some situations where I didn't control, other situations where we had a lot more control. It was really nice. We had space and lots of elbow high-fiving, if that's even a thing. Um, so yeah, it's a weird overlay. It's a weird time in America. And meanwhile, we're talking about a case that at any time the defendant could go down with the coronavirus and I'm pretty sure he wouldn't survive. So, um, although cockroaches do survive. So there's always that as, uh, yesterday. So, uh, I, I think I might've mentioned it. I know I mentioned on Twitter, but I decided to go ahead and take up the offer that the defense made to us to meet with them. And I'll tell you about that. I'd been holding back on the discussion of the letter that they sent, but I have that here on my phone so I can read it to you. But they sent a letter, uh, I think they originally started setting the letters back in um, in January, but I got mine in February. And essentially, this is if you've read any of the press, you know these letters went out. So I had a meeting with the public defender in the morning and that was, and we did that at the DA's office. And then we had court, of course, which I know um, many of you that are interested in all the details have potentially watched the stream by now. So that's kind of good, thank goodness, because it was a lot and I, I, my hand was so sore from taking notes. And then in the afternoon, uh, um, the victims went over and met with the prosecutors, which was uh, a really good, good meeting. And I can't say much about it, but I can tell you a little, I can characterize it for you a little later. So I'll do that, but I will tell you overall it was good. In fact, I think all of us last night when we were texting one another felt like yesterday was a really good day, all, all in. So um, let me start off with this letter because this is really, um, it's, it's something I've wanted to share with you, but I wanted to wait. So I will post this to my blog maybe today. Um, maybe today I'll, I'll get this up there. What I'm doing, just so you know, on the podcast, in the descriptions, if there is a an associated blog where I've either provided documentation, sometimes the things I talk about are complicated or I have a document um, in a couple cases, it's a document I don't feel comfortable sharing because I didn't obtain it and it has somebody else's copyright on it. It's not really their copyright, but they paid for it. So I, I really want to respect that. But where I can and when I can, I'm going to try to provide a, docu a documentation backup in my blog at thelawyersdaughter.com. And I will always put the link to the, the relevant blog in the description of the podcast. So for example, um, if you were interested in what Chris and Gay had said in the podcast and wanted to look at it in writing, 
I will put that in there. It's not up yet, but I will put that up there for you. And also then, of course, in the legal documents, when I have things that I can show you and cite, I'll link those to the podcast as well. So same with today. If I can get this up there, um, as soon as you see that link available, you'll know it's up on the blog and that you can take a look at this letter. So this came, mine was dated February 3rd, 2020. Now I'm struggling with my reading glasses, so bear with me. It's a, it's a picture on my phone. But it came from the Office of the Public Defender. It was signed by Alice Michael. I don't know if it's Alice Alice Michael or Alice Michelle. I should have asked her yesterday, but I didn't. And Joseph Cress. Joseph is still associated with the case. The woman that I uh, mentioned the other day, Jennifer Seary, who we heard yesterday in court, is their DNA expert. Okay. Yeah. Well, there you go. All right. So here's the letter that we got. Um, it's so funny to me because a lot of times my name is not right because I legally changed my name when I was 18. And this has my name not exactly right, but I don't care. It doesn't matter. But it says, Dear Miss Carol, we are the attorneys appointed to represent Joseph D'Angelo in the murder case involving Lyman and Charlene Smith. Please allow me to begin by saying I am. we are very sorry. To, uh, I'm sorry. I just noticed that. Please allow me to begin that we are very sorry. Okay, that's interesting. Let me start over again. Let me just start over again. I'll, I'll try not to do that real time. What? Wait, did I just see that for the first time? We are the attorneys appointed to represent Joseph D'Angelo in the murder case involving Lyman and Charlene Smith. Please allow me to begin by saying we are very sorry for the emotional pain and trauma the event caused you and your family. Criminal cases often take many years to resolve by trial. The trial process is often stressful for victims and their families. This particular case is exceedingly complex due to the number of charged crimes and the diverse locations of the charged crimes. We would like to reach a resolution in the case that avoids a trial, satisfies all parties, and provides a more immediate resolution of the case. Such a resolution would hopefully provide closure for you. Period. That was a period. Sorry, I didn't mean to up-talk there. Closure for you. If avoiding the trial process appeals to you, we hope that you feel comfortable providing your input to both the district attorney and the defense team. Regardless of whether you would like to give input into how this case resolves, we recognize that you have questions about what is happening in the case. We may be able to answer some of those questions. Because we represent Joseph D'Angelo, we understand you may not feel comfortable speaking with us directly. We have asked, and then there's a person's name, but it actually is the wrong person's name, so I'm going to not say it right now, to contact you. This person is an independent victim outreach specialist, and we hope that she can work with you as a liaison between you and the defense team. She can bring any questions or thoughts you may have to us as we go through this process. Although we hired this person, she serves only as a liaison between victims and family members and the defense team. She is not part of the defense team. I hope you will not find this communication intrusive. Our goal is to resolve the case in a manner that satisfies all parties, and we want you involved in the conversation. Respectfully, Alice Michelle and Joseph Cress. And I apologize if I bungled Alice's last name. I feel really bad that I don't know how to get that right. They are both supervising public defenders. Okay, it's super important to know that this letter came, again, mine dated February 3rd. We've, we've had them for about a month, a little over a month. And um, it caused a lot of angst in the group of, the only people that got these, well, it caused a lot of angst, and the people that got these are the people with charges pending. So remember, we, we have subsets of victims, right? So these are the victims 
that are part of the 26 counts that are pending right now. And those are available um, in my blog that just go in there and um, search on 20 or counts, just the counts, word counts, I think is pretty, I think that'll probably bring up the blog that has it. I think it's an April, a court date in April last year. Um, okay, so the, I just want to make sure you understood who has these letters. So when I got this letter, you, you need to know I was a rhetoric major at UC Davis, and that means I really care about language and how words are used. It has a lot of, language is very powerful, and the words you choose have meaning. So when I got this letter, I read it as an invitation to speak with them, and I also was really unclear about a few things. And so I went ahead and asked for a meeting. And this has been on the back burner for a while, something that I talked with my prosecutorial team, Cheryl Temple. I talked to her about that and said, yeah, I'd like to do it. And I would, and very much would like to have you come with me. So she took then the responsibility of going ahead and setting it up, which got, ended up getting set up for yesterday because she was in town. And she brought two of her investig- DA investigators with her, different from police investigators, they are DA, DA investigators. Uh, both of whom I've talked to and worked with with different other questions along the way. So I wanted to, the reason I wanted the meeting is I wanted to ask really what was this letter saying? Because I think that, and you'll when you get a chance to look at it, you'll maybe see what I'm talking about. But there's some language in here that's a bit ambiguous. And so I really wanted to understand what was it they were saying to us. So as I, I got ready yesterday morning, I wasn't particularly nervous or anything, but I was just, you know, pretty amped because it's a big deal and I didn't, I wanted to be respectful of everyone's time because I knew they all had a lot of um, important things to do and I felt a little bit um, greedy taking their time. And I also knew it could potentially, it could potentially be contentious because you've got both sides now sitting in a room. Um, kind of not my problem, but also just a fact. So it was funny and and a little bit um, sweet, actually. As I was walking up to the district attorney's office, I think I was on the phone or whatever, and I see um, both Alice and, uh, I'm sorry, I'm going to forget names again because I'm so bad at names, but, but I'm sorry, both Alice and Joseph Kress walking up and they're looking at me and I go, yeah, I'm Jennifer Carroll. Cause I definitely remembered what Joseph looks like from the courtroom um, for sure. Cause he's basically the only man over there on that side with D'Angelo. And so then we went in, I went in and sanitized and went to the bathroom as all women do. And they were put into a, an anterior or I'm sorry, exterior waiting room. I was brought into what I call the DA's bullpen, which is this um, area of sofas inside or couches inside the DA's office, where I immediately began looking for the dog that is sometimes brought to work. And this dog, I don't, I don't remember if it's a Labradoodle. I think I posted a picture of him once. It's this amazing dog, and I was like, I get, I need the dog. Somebody get me the dog, but it didn't. I didn't have that much time because uh, Cheryl and team were coming down, and we all went into a conference room, and the meeting was recorded. I was not told that anything was confidential. They, the defense team walked in. I'm smiling because they walked in and immediately said, "We listened to your podcast." At which point I went, "Okay, so I'm busted." I said, "So." Um, 
yeah, I'm, I'm not necessarily all that nice to you. And they said, well, you're actually a lot nicer than many people. And then um, Mr. Kress said, yeah, and sometimes you get the law wrong. And I said, please tell me that when I'm getting the wrong law, the law wrong, that I'm admitting that I may be getting it wrong. And he goes, oh, no, you, you do admit it. And you, otherwise, you're doing a great job. Like, he was actually very um, complimentary, which I thought, wow, okay, that's generous. And I said, you just, you do understand I have a bias. And he said, yes. Then I did explain to them, I said, listen, I understand that this is your job and I actually you know, need you to do a good job. It's important to me. My dad had to defend a capital case when, he, when I was young and that's when my dad got his concealed carry permit. And I remember I hated that gun and I didn't really understand the case. I was definitely young. I might've been about six years old. It had to do with a, a man who raped and killed a little girl in the um, Steckle Creek. I forget what we call that creek, but it was by Steckle Park, the creek that comes down through Santa Paula. And my dad um, didn't particularly love defending this death penalty case, but moreover, he had found something that, this was before Brady, so I must've been about six. Because he, I believe, if my mom has the story correct, he found something that could have potentially, um, a technicality that could have gotten the guy off. And my dad was torn up ethically over this. And I believe the outcome of the case is he ended up negotiating for a life without parole, which then my dad could live with because the technicality was still there, but it would it was kind of irrelevant and he wouldn't have had a man's death on his shoulders. In fact, that's where I think my dad really became a strong death penalty opponent. It was working through that case. And I know he got death threats. And that's what I told the defense yesterday. I said, I'm sorry, if you get death threats, if people are being mean to you, I'm really sorry. Because that you have to do this job and it's an important part of our process. And I absolutely respect it. Um, yeah, I have a bias, but I respect that you that you do this job and that I need you to do a good job because I want to make sure we get D'Angelo absolutely based on the evidence. And I said, I still believe he's DNA guilty. So at, then what happened next is that we dove into my questions and it and I started first with the questions about the letter. So I said I was really interested in there that you wanted to come up with a resolution that would satisfy all parties. And I said, is it are you looking for what I would call a win-win? And they acknowledged, yeah, they were. They were hoping to come up with something that would work for um, all of us to get death off the table, if that was possible, and to... Um, end litigation, meaning no trial, either now or at some point in the future, and that they were, you know, they did, were looking for a win-win. And I said, I, I think you might have misunderstood our position in this. We are not looking for a win-win. We absolutely want to win-lose. And they kind of chuckled. Um, they then stressed that they wanted open communication with the victims, which I have to say I, I find a little odd I don't know what they would, um, what 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 they're really hoping to achieve, but that's when I had suggested to them that you know you're opening by saying something like that, like anybody can contact us. This is a channel for communication, the victims and the defense. It's the defense, guys. Why would you? What are your expectations? Because for me, it sounds like you're opening Pandora's box, and they said, you know, we want to go ahead and answer what we can. And sure, we know we're opening Pandora's box, but we've already had someone tell us to go fuck ourselves with regard to the letter. And I guess somebody put that in writing. God love my other fellow survivors. So um, I, I just was a little confused about this, but we got into the, then we got into the discussion of this third party. 
So often, often in a capital case, a defense team will hire these third-party consultants. They typically have um, an agenda, which is to work to convince people that the death penalty is extra, is um, not productive, and is, is harmful. So, but they didn't talk about that particularly. They did. They said, nope, they're not anti... They actually said they are not actually death penalty advocates, and they're not advocates, period, that they are essentially go-betweens. But then they said something odd, and I do... I'm, I'm extremely... I'm not accusing them of lying, but I have been a consultant, and I absolutely understand how a consultant works. As a consultant, you are paid by your client. That means you are there to look out for your client's interests. I understand there are potentially consultants out there who are paid to be neutral, but I would think that they then should be paid by a third party because it's nearly impossible to be neutral when you're talking about who's paying you. And they suggested that things, if we said something that we, if we talked to this consultant and said something should be kept in confidence, it would be held in confidence. But that is where I just feel like that was a reach. I'm not accusing them of lying. I will blatantly accuse them, since they listen, of being overly idealistic and maybe naive. Does that feel better than maybe saying something that might not be true? I don't know. But I, I, I didn't believe them when they said that. I absolutely understand if I talk to somebody hired by the defense, anything I say can and will be shared with the defense. So there you have it. And I don't think any of us are inclined to talk to these third-party people. It's just uh, we are such a tight group and we do such a good job of managing our communication now that I don't think anybody's particularly inclined. I could be wrong. There are many survive. Uh, there are many victims that I don't know that aren't here, um, that aren't part of our group. So they may or may not be talking with these people. But of anyone I know, I, of the people I do know, I know that there's not an inclination to speak. Okay, so then I thought, okay, I don't have any more questions about the letter. We spent maybe 10 minutes talking about the letter. I said, but I do have a couple other questions. My first question is, why in the heck did you go ahead and put that D'Angelo was willing to plea in the footnote of that motion? And they said it was a tactical decision and they were not comfortable discussing with me based on who else was in the room, essentially saying, it's part of their case strategy that they did that, and they, don't, of course, don't want to talk about it in front of the prosecution. Okay, fine. I told them we didn't appreciate it, and it caused a lot of damage that didn't need to happen to victims that were unprepared for that news to break that really actually was a, as it said, a nothing burger. Um, but I want to make sure they had that feedback. Uh, then I switched over to talk about D'Angelo's health. And I said, look, I here's what I haven't been able to understand. Who is responsible for his health? We are all aware he has lost weight. But who really is responsible for his health? And they quickly said it is the jail's responsibility, not theirs. Um, and he can get medical help if he asks for it. If anybody's done research on Sacramento County's um, medical care, I believe it's it might get three stars, not five. So I said, okay, look, here's the deal. I want to know, you guys are you guys are the ones most likely because you spend time with him, you talk with him, you would have a good sense of his um, state of mind, what's worrying him, what he's thinking about. I want to know if you have any responsibility whatsoever if you think he is suicidal. 
And they both agreed that they do have a responsibility if they think he is suicidal. And that, I guess, and I have never been in one of these rooms, but apparently in the conference rooms for lawyers and uh, suspects, there's a sticker there that has a number you call if you believe the suspect is in any way suicidal. And they said if they thought at any time he was suicidal, they would be obligated to make that phone call. So at least I got that information from them. And I think that's powerful and really, really important. Now I'm going to drop out of this meeting for just a second and tell you a little bit more about this because I think this, I got some other feedback from other folks yesterday about his state of mind and what's going on. And, you know, we're all prepared for this being a certain amount of theater. He certainly has lost a lot of weight. But from one person I spoke with who has experience with people in custody, they assured me that they don't believe, first of all, that he has the courage to commit suicide. If he had, he would have done it already. They also believe that a lot of this is an act. They do say that typically inmates, especially the way this is going, when they come into jail, they immediately lose weight because the food is really bad and there's not a lot of um, things for them to do, but they don't eat. And um, from their understanding, D'Angelo spends a lot of time pacing his cell. That's kind of his way of maintaining his uh, physical activity. So he's actually taking an interest in his own physical activity. I don't know anything else other than the pacing. And so they wanted me to feel very reassured, I think, that they don't believe he's suicidal. Now, I can't speak to coronavirus. We all know that's out there somewhere and we can't see it coming, but it's out. I suspect if it rages through the Sacramento County prison, we have a different problem. But I feel better about his health than I have felt based on the information I gathered yesterday. And even seeing him in the courtroom, which we all did, you know, a couple hours later, he came out, he is absolutely a bit thinner. Um, For sure, you could see bones through the skin this time. I mean, bones meaning the skin now hanging on the bone, um, not protruding through the skin, but just that there's more definition of bone because he's, there's not much body fat left at all, if anything. There's just not much more he has to give in terms of body fat. But they assure me that he is more coherent than he appears. So I just wanted to put that out there because it's something all of us have followed and it's probably the most visual evidence we have right now of how he's doing. Then the last question I asked is, because this one's really bugged me, is that why is it that D'Angelo did not enter his plea in the last hearing, the one I missed? And they explained the way pleas work in Sacramento, and it, and then, and then Cheryl explained how they're different in Ventura. So here's the deal: this culture in Sacramento is to not enter a plea until the last minute, and that is because once you enter a plea, the defendant then can ask for a prelim within ten days of that plea. In Ventura, so in Sacramento, they usually wait. That's what they were telling me. It's it's tip it's typical to wait. And in this case, the judge then enters the plea for the client and all the client has to do, the defendant and all the defendant has to do is say yes, which is what we all heard is the yes. In Ventura, just Cheryl just explained to just for the contrast is in Ventura, they often will enter the plea, but then they spend time on asking for time waivers repeatedly because they need more time before they go to that prelim. 
So there's the, the juxtaposition and why it happened the way it happened. Uh, it's not so satisfying for us, but at least I could understand what was going on. The meeting ended very amicably. I would say we were together maybe 40 minutes. Um, and then they left and, and I left, went to go get something really quick to drink. And then we come back to court. So, okay, ching, ching, break. Now we're into, we, now you're, we're changing over to being in court. And we usually, um, I think you guys know now, the victims go, we get in early. We got in early. They let us into the courtroom at about 1.15. And I always take a place in the far corner so I can write and have room to write because I'm going to take notes. We filled up. It, 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 it took a while to fill up, but there was something that happened at the beginning that I thought was just kind of amazing. And it hasn't really happened this way before. So we had um, Judge Stephen White and it did look like D'Angelo had a lot of attorneys. Diane Howard showed up and also he, the other DNA expert lady was there for, for the defense. And then, of course, we had all of our prosecutors, which was two rows of folks, main folks at the front table and then the row behind us you saw. And then a ton of media, which I don't know how they do it, um, standing crowded up there because they've got to be hot and they're piled on top of each other. It's along the right side of the courtroom. But, but what happened is that um, we got quiet. We didn't get called to order per se because the judge wasn't in the room, but everybody got in their places and we all have to shut off our phones and shut the heck up and settle down. And D'Angelo was brought into the cage. And I first thought, I even wrote this in my notes, like I hate this part because he just comes out. It's a tiny bit of theater. The people that escort him sometimes move to steady him. They are holding gloves, but I also hate, I don't want any virus near him. But he stands in that cage waiting. He's got chains on, uh, his hands in front, his chains around his waist. This time the chain actually doubled, um, meaning that's how much slack there is now. But what I noticed, and I said, I my notes say, you know, the chain was doubled. You could see the bones. There were two guards inside. He was looking sleepy, slightly unsteady. And again, I, I, I don't mean that he was unsteady. He was looking unsteady. And then the judge didn't come out. This went on, I think, maybe for three or four long minutes. You could hear constant shutters of the cameras, which digital cameras, crazy, man. They are shuddering and shuddering. So you're hearing click, 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 all these cameras clicking, but it's still. And then when people realize the judge isn't coming out, suddenly there are the whispers start. There's, the whispers never got too loud, but there, there was this kind of hush of whispers and camera shutters clicking. And, um, and, it, and then we finally began at 13.37, which is, I'm sorry, I don't normally write in 24 hours, but at 1.37. And it started off with Cheryl Temple, uh, my hero prosecutor. I love her. She's so good. Anyway, it started off with her. And as you guys know, you can listen in detail to the motion that was going to be discussed, but this really was going to be about the DNA swabs. And again, I'm looking at my notes, so I'll, I'll kind of gloss over a little bit and, and just talk about the big moments. But um, they really went through the, the details of essentially the rebuttal from the defense in terms of what they were arguing. And, and just to help you remember, there were really some 
um, big points that they were going to argue. One is that they wanted an offer of proof that they needed that the that the prosecution needed more DNA. So prove to us you need more. They wanted to discuss the denial of collection, which is the motion that was said uh, you can't collect more right now until we discuss it in court. They wanted to discuss testimonial if this evidence was considered testimonial evidence, which is a nuance. They wanted to talk about whether he had a right to counsel during the collection of the swabs. They wanted to talk about whether a collection of the additional DNA should um, require a proceeding. We're in fact in said proceeding, so it kind of nullified itself. They wanted to make sure that the DNA was collected in one session without force. And then they wanted to understand the role of the prosecution. And that was the big jurisdiction issue. So those were the things that were going to get discussed. So the judge allows the prosecution to start. And Cheryl came out of the gate pretty strong, talked about a lot of um, code, uh, uh, I'm sorry, penal code that speaks to the violations and what the rights are basing, based on that and how this proceeding would proceed, like how this would work arguing that this is not a proceeding, but this is a warrant. So that was that idea of, does this need certain, um, right? Does this, is he entitled to certain rights and privileges because this is a proceeding? Or is this actually just the execution of a search warrant, which is what the prosecution was suggesting is this is just a search warrant. Why are we doing all of this extra nonsense? So what they wanted to do, what started then becoming the big argument, and you may have noticed this in the discussion, in the, um, sorry, in the stream, is that there was a lot of disagreement about what DNA has already been collected. I believe we have agreement that on April 24th, when he was booked, Potentially, there was a swab taken then. This one was not contested or in any way discussed, but potentially, upon arrest, a swab is taken for CODIS. That is to go put in the database that this person accused of these felonies is now incarcerated and here is his DNA. That doesn't go to anybody but CODIS. Then, in fact, on the 25th, swabs were taken or a swab was taken. I'm not sure if it was one or two. A kit and contains two swabs. So that was taken on the 25th as cited in the motion by the prosecution asking for more DNA by, um, I think it's Lieutenant Belli. He took those swabs and that's where I said, as I read the motion, it seemed as though D'Angelo was of no help in the collecting of that DNA. In fact, um, the lieutenant had to go ahead and just push forward and do it. He had asked D'Angelo to do it himself, but he declined or just didn't say anything actually. Um, so the, the, and the, but, but, but then there's this third time, which is May 5th, when the defense is just convinced additional DNA was taken. And yet the prosecution saying, no, we did not take additional DNA at that time. That was merely the taking of the photos. So all of you wondering, did they take photos? Yes, they absolutely did. Were his pants off? Yes, they absolutely were. So those questions now answered. And also prints. That's in on May 3rd. After court, just so you know, because I, I was really peeved about this, because this doesn't seem this should be a he said, she said situation. But after court, I was able to um, confirm that in fact, Absolutely, it was not taken on May 3rd. It is documented in a report written up about 
taking the photos and taking the prints. So there is, it, it, it doesn't require a he said, she said. Um, I can't believe we spent this much time on this, but it, it took a lot of the discussion yesterday and it was, it was a little, I was very frustrated because I'm like, this shouldn't, there just should be proof. Why are we even debating this? There's just plain proof somewhere. So it turns out there was. Okay, so as we moved through the issues, what then became really, what, what was interesting, okay, so so Cheryl presented her information. Then Jennifer Seri got up and she presented the um, her her arguments. And essentially she reiterated what was in the motion and we've been, or her rebuttal, and we've been through that. But what they were saying is that five swabs, um, including one for later, Cheryl said they need four right now and one for later, is, isn't appropriate. And if, and then she brought up Brady, if there's something that's happened that has used up this DNA such that there's evidence that might be Brady, they have a right to that which nobody's disputing, absolutely you have a right to anything Brady, but there isn't, according to our prosecution, there isn't anything Brady involved. So she, and then she was making her arguments about death penalty cases require additional steps, different additional protocol. And um, there's a lot of jargon about all of this, but then the judge said, okay, well, I'm not understanding. If you if you want there to be due process, we're doing a proceeding, we're doing that now. Is there some other red remedy you're seeking? And she's acknowledged, no, there is no other remedy. This is the remedy. And that the judge did sign the the enjoin, which means stop, you can't go collect the DNA till we hear it in a proceeding. And she said, yes, that's true. And he goes, so we're all good. This is This part's all good. She said, yes. Um, and then she, then there was the discussion about the non, it, it being non-testimonial evidence. Um, and the argument is that, I, it, no, it, it's not, it, I don't know that he, are, that the judge ruled that, um, okay, oh, hang on a second. Okay, the judge, so she said she was, she was frustrated, I'll use the word frustrated, that the, the, the D'Angelo's participation in the original DNA swab on April 25th, that first one, or the not the CODIS one, the first one that they did that we talked about in the last podcast, that she was upset about the characterization of D'Angelo as being non-cooperative. In fact, she said, Your Honor, he was merely silent. That's it. Merely silence. The judge then said, I didn't, in, I didn't infer that he resisted or that he was, or he was delinquent. He saw it as being responsive, even though he didn't speak. It, he, she didn't, and she said, no, they characterized it as a lap, lack of cooperation and referred to the footnote where they said, they, where the prosecution said they wanted to use force if needed to get this additional DNA. Again, we're kind of dancing on the head of a pin. So... I want to make sure everybody understands this is a lot of arguing, but does it does it really matter? I don't know what they would use as force. I don't know how that would look, but he hasn't demonstrated that need. And maybe we just come back if that was the situation. But okay, that's that's just how important and how nuanced these discussions were. So let me go on down. Then we talked about his Sixth Amendment violations. This is, um, they were looking at the argument that we, 
that they needed to have, that this search warrant, so what I think this is about is that the search warrants, if it's a search warrant for the prosecution, that becomes a Sixth Amendment violation, which is providing evidence that uh, that he shouldn't have to provide. Um, this isn't a critical stage. And so this, okay, sorry, I should spend more time looking this up. But the the point is, this wasn't an issue. Um, if we had to, the, even the judge is like, look, we could do this in open court if we need to, but we don't need to do that in open court. We don't need to take his swabs in open court. This isn't a Sixth Amendment issue. It's all okay. So the people then came back up. They said each DNA kit includes two swabs per kit, and they would like five kits. And then Cheryl once again said, who needed this? It's not a Brady. This is not a Brady issue. Um, there's, they need the big, the most important argument that the prosecution was making. And I thought this was really powerful. And she did a really good job of explaining this very plainly. The prosecution's main, main objective is to prove the identity of the criminal. And we're not going to stipulate to the that since the defense hasn't offered to stipulate that he is the criminal. I don't know. Go look at that footnote. Maybe they have stipulated that he is a criminal, but they haven't agreed to stipulate it in a, in a way that's in open court to stipulate his identity. Then they have to have a way to prove it. The prosecution must be able to prove this is the guy and they need to do that with the DNA. It is their burden which I have to say is a pretty convincing argument when it comes down to it. We don't want to do this without being con um, convincing. We want them to have the burden of proving he's the guy. And so then there's a, a law, 190.9, that's talk, that was discussed a lot. And again, I'm not really sure. This got back into the DNA swabs and who did what to whom in what order. And what the photographs versus swabs versus fingerprints. Now we know all of that doesn't matter because the then the judge vacated the previous order and he ordered that the swabs be taken. He ordered that four kits be done now. And if a fifth is needed, come back. And we are not to use force. I guess we don't get to have an arm or a leg or a finger. Okay, so the good news, this is actually great news, and I've actually today tried to verify that this has been done, but my, I haven't heard back yet. I'm going to, um, I feel very comfortable assuming it's been done because I sounded like they were going to try to do it yesterday afternoon because a lot of people were right there present. The people that needed to do these things were there at court, so, and the court is at the county jail where D'Angelo lives. So I suspect this has been done, but I do not yet have confirmation. And I've literally received texts from people wanting to know if I can confirm it. I cannot yet, but they're proceeding with four kits, which is essentially eight swabs, and they can come back for a fifth if needed. Okay, so now we're going to shift to the most confusing part, which is going to be something we'll bring up in the motion to dismiss as soon as I get to that um, in the days to come, because now we have a little bit of time. So the judge then said, I am, I, I, I'm confused as to what this, um, I'm sorry, the defense came up and said, look, it's really confusing to us what this choice prosecution means. Who's in charge of what? Who's making the decisions? Is it Anne-Marie? Is it Amy? Is it 
10, who makes all the calls from the different counties? Is it, who's going to be able to settle? Now you have to imagine from their point of view, um, whether or not this is true, it's a great argument because what they're saying is they don't know who's the boss of who, and they don't know who they are negotiating with and how they need to proceed. What's been happening apparently is that the defense has sent messages over to the Sacramento District Attorney's Office with the understanding that Sacramento is then passing that along. Their experience as they report it, the defense reports it, is that when they've done that, there's been a delay. But when they go directly to the jurisdiction, they suddenly get an answer. Um, I describe this as, um, I describe this conundrum a little bit like if you walk into an alley and you feel like people are shooting at you from all sides, you're going to not know who to shoot back at. I believe the reality is, though, there's really only one person shooting at them, and it's directly in front of them, and it's from the Sacramento County District Attorney's Office. I, I suspect they think they're being shot at from all sides, but that's not really what's happening. It's how it feels, and it's how frustrated they are, and it's a yucky feeling because they know the people on all the sides of them have guns, but all those people aren't shooting. That's my characterization. I, I think, and, I, and you can imagine how that might feel knowing that everybody around you has guns, but really the only bullets are coming from the people straight in front of you. <clears throat> that said, um, the discussion turned to this interesting uh, conversation. And, and this is the, and, and so this is the defense first put up all this, um, all these issues about these mechanical issues. Anybody who's worked in an office or any kind of team that's distributed understands the difficulty of working with a distributed team. And what the defense was arguing is the distribution is affecting them. And what the uh, prosecution's arguing is the distribution is an us problem. We'll manage distribution. You just need to work with Sacramento. That's their point of view. And they also said, argued that it is the defense has no right to either control nor even understand how the prosecution is pursuing this case. I thought this was really interesting because it's basically nunya, as in nunya business. Um, I didn't know how, I didn't know you could put a wall up like that. I guess I didn't realize it kind of makes sense that you don't get to understand each other's strategies. But the defense has had this um, concern for a while now, and we'll see it in the motion to dismiss, that they don't know where who's shooting the guns. But basically, Cheryl's response was, you don't get to know who's shooting the guns. You just get to know, get to know people will be shooting. You don't get to know which guns will be shooting. Okay, that's how it works now. Now I understand. I thought that was really interesting. And he also was, um, the judge was also making some some preliminary question, ask some preliminary questions about the way the prosecution has assembled this distributed team, distributed in terms of different jurisdictions, is not without precedent. So uh, the, the defense still said that this did feel like this was unusual, but he, the judge basically came back and said, look, here's the deal. You guys need to talk to each other. You need to work this out figure it out and come back and tell me you figured it out. And I think they had have to get it figured out by next Friday. 
Now, the judge was sympathetic to the argument that there was an imbalance of resources. So now this is back to different jurisdictions have both public defender's office offices and prosecution offices, prosecutor's offices. So, um, d- d- sorry, district attorney's offices. So it is not unreasonable for the public d- defender to be looking for additional resources based on other jurisdictions. Um, I don't know how this is going to get resolved, but they are looking for, the judge said it was basically um, reasonable to expect that there would be some way to figure out how not to have to bear all the costs. Um, okay, so, and and then he said we're going to, he really wants them to use a collegial approach to solving this problem right now. He essentially said, go back and figure it out, work as a team. At that point, Tin stood up from Sacramento and said, yeah, we this is part of a team. And this, probably this part of the discussion, if you haven't watched the streaming, was actually the most interesting. Okay, that got resolved. Just go figure it out. And we're going to be talking about this in the motion to dismiss again. So, you know, let's, we'll come back to this. Um, and in the meantime, you guys go figure this out. Then there was a little bit more about... Um, Hang on, sorry, just advancing in my notes. Then the judge was ready to wrap things up, but there was just a little bit more to figure out, and that was to add another, um, is to, to see if they could add another hearing date. That will now be on April 22nd, where we'll talk about the, there will be probably two motions. One will be likely a continuance and another would be a, a motion to compel having to do with resources. So we'll see if those are what comes back. I'll watch for those motions. We'll talk about those when they come up. And then, of course, there is one on the 29th, which is the motion to dismiss. And the demurrer, which is, they say demurrer. They said, okay, sorry. <laughs> you got to love law. It's spelled D-E-M-U-R-R-E-R. There's a lot of R's in there. I want to say demure, but they slur it all together, demure. And that has to do with, it's a, I think this is a typical um, kind of motion that comes from the defense. I'm going to look it up and I'm going to see if I can get my hands on that motion. And we will go through that as well. That is something that is customary. So we wrapped up at about um, 55 minutes. And we will have two more hearings. Again, we have the coronavirus factor in play. So I can't tell you how anything's going to happen. But everybody is still on track to move forward as it's set out. So after court, we whisked out pretty fast because we then had the meeting with the prosecutors. And again, that meeting is confidential. So I'm not going to talk about what we discussed in there. But I will, I will characterize it as incredibly positive. I think uh, um, I shut up, if you can believe it. I think a lot, (laughs) yes, I did. I think a lot of the folks who had questions, meaning the victims that had questions, including victims who are not, do not have charges pending. So people who are victims, but because of the statute of limitations cannot have crimes filed against him at this time they got a lot of their questions answered and the answers were good answers. And so take it from me and feeling really good about what people heard yesterday. And I, I think that there's not a big deal in telling you this part, that there are three distinct phases um, 
in what's going to happen next. So the and the, and they're just three big big phases. So the next phase after these two hearings is of course the preliminary hearing, which is still right now slated for May. All bets are off. Anything can happen. We're going to roll the dice here. And then it will be the trial itself, the big Magilla that um, where we hope to get a formal verdict of guilty. And then the last phase, the third phase, is the penalty phase. And that is when they talk about what is that dispensation, what will we do here in terms of um, the sentence that he would get and how that might look. I did hear things yesterday in the meeting with them that I can go research, and so I can not tell you what happened at that meeting, but I can at least go tell you about some things that are about this case that have nothing to do with their strategy. So um, anything I share about that will be absolutely neutral and descriptive in nature, not necessarily about our case, and I will make sure I provide that caveat when I do that so that you're clear this is not their strategy because I don't know their strategy. But I thought it was um, it was a really good day. It it just it was a it was an exhausting, really good day. I think we got done talking to the prosecutors just a few minutes before four because Amy and Tin were already late for meetings they had to get to. I mean, these folks made time for us, and I cannot tell you how meaningful that was. And they were very, very open to hearing our feedback and wanting and, and understanding from us that we wanted to get. Um, better information a bit sooner and in a more uniform way. So that was just, it was just incredibly encouraging. And I thought that um, they all, they are, they are all remarkably empathetic, which is being raised by a lawyer, a little surprising at how good they are at being empathetic because it's, it's almost a skill you have to turn off in order to be able to do some of the work that they do. And yet I found, um, Cheryl and Amy and Tin to be remarkably empathetic and really listened, and it was fantastic in that regard. I, I don't know that anybody would disagree with that um, characterization of the meeting. Okay, so uh, I'm going to go home to Santa Cruz, fetch a bunch of things, and come back up to Sacramento, and I will be back probably on Monday with another podcast. I'm going to take the weekend off and just get some sleep and enjoy my daughter and enjoy my moving back and forth. I hope you all have a good weekend, and I will talk to you soon. Thank you so much for listening. Hey, Jen, cue that music. <laughs>